Thank you very much for your welcome. It's a, a pleasure to be here with you once again and to share with you from God's Word. Now, the passage that we're looking at tonight, as you know, is uh, in First Peter, the passage which was read to us, First Peter chapter 2. And uh, I would like particularly to focus on the words which you find in verse 21 to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Now here, Peter is alluding back to the death, the trial, the arrest, the trial, and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is an appropriate passage for us at this time of year as we approach Easter, because This passage tells us not only that Jesus died, lived and died as our substitute, but that he also lived and died as our example. And I think it is important for us, particularly at this time of year, uh, to remember that. And uh, because Peter is alluding back to the narrative of the Gospels, I want to read to you just a few verses from Matthew chapter 27 particularly that part uh, where after the trial and after the sentence was passed on Jesus, the soldiers began to mock him. Matthew 27, verse 27. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand As a scepter. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After after they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. Now, I've just read these verses from, not from the NIV, but from today's NIV, which is slightly different uh, from the more traditional uh, NIV. And uh, the translation of uh, verse uh, 29 draws out uh, what is implied in the text when it says that they put a staff in his right hand as a scepter. Now, a scepter, according to the Oxford English, uh, the compact Oxford English Dictionary is a staff carried by a king or queen on ceremonial occasions. And the soldiers took that uh, uh, staff, that rod, and put it in the hands of Jesus, and they mocked him as a pseudo-king. He had uh, claimed to be the king of the Jews, And they didn't, of course, take him seriously, but they mocked him, and they give him this symbol of royalty, this symbol of sovereignty. But the word scepter is a word which you find uh, in the scriptures. In the Old Testament, uh, Amos tells us that uh, he refers to the king or the ruler as the one who holds the scepter. And so the scepter was then and still is today a symbol of royal authority. In fact, in the the book of Genesis, it is uh, 
present it to us as a metaphor of the authority of the Messiah, of Jesus, when he would come. Uh, we read in the blessing that was, uh, Jacob gave to uh, Judah that the scepter will not depart from Judah until he to whom it belongs shall come and the obedience of the nations be his. And again in Psalm 2, uh, the, the, which anticipates the coming of the king of kings, uh, the psalmist says, you will rule them with an iron scepter. And that phrase is quoted on at least two occasions in the book of Revelation, which sees it being fulfilled in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to ask you a question tonight. As you think of the Jesus as king, what is his scepter? What is the symbol of his rule and his authority? What indicates, what expresses his royal authority? Well, let me answer that question by a little bit of autobiography. Many years ago, when my wife and I lived in Peru, uh, we were then young and in our 20s, and uh, on one occasion, I went along, we worked in Lima, and I went to uh, look at some reference books in the library of the Methodist Center in Lima. They had a very good library, one of the best in the city, a Christian library at that time. And there I found a first edition, a 1536 edition of Calvin's Institutes. And I was reading there, it was in Spanish, but I was able to, 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 to read it because we worked in Spanish. Uh, and I came across the phrase, the, scepter, the scriptures are the scepter of Christ. And that sort of clicked with me. And it helped me to realize that there is no real difference between the authority of the Bible and the authority of Jesus. The scriptures are the scepter of Christ. And this phrase you find throughout the writings of John Calvin, the Genevan reformer of the 16th century. He says further on in his institutes that Christ reigns only by his word. Christ reigns through his word. And again in his commentary in Isaiah, he speaks of the word which is Christ's royal scepter. And it's important for us to remember that the Bible is authoritative for us as Christians, not simply because it is the Bible, but because it is the scepter of Jesus. It is the symbol of his rule. It is the symbol of his authority over us. It is the Bible, it is the scriptures that mediates the rule of Jesus as Lord over his people. Now, sometimes you hear people speaking about the authority of the Bible on the one hand and the authority of Jesus on the other. But I think Calvin is challenging us to question that and to recognize that there is no real distinction because the scriptures are the scepter of Jesus. The scriptures witness to him, the scriptures testify to him as he himself tells us. And so when we acknowledge the authority of the scriptures, we are in fact bowing the knee to Jesus Christ. And it's very important for us to recognize that, that we're not 
as it were, engaging in worshipping a book. We're not bibliologists, as uh, sometimes is that we are accused of being. We are, in fact, worshipping Jesus because Jesus mediates his lordship. He communicates his lordship through the scriptures. And Jesus reveals the manner in which he wants us to respect and obey his rule over us in the Bible. Through, uh, he does it in the Bible through the scriptures. And there are three particular passages. Now, there are many others, of course, but I want to focus tonight on three passages which uh, communicate the will of Jesus to us as his disciples. The first is the passage which contains the great commandment. You remember the story? Let me read it to you again from Matthew chapter 22. An expert in the Jewish law asked Jesus this question. Teacher, he said, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments, said Jesus. So there you have the great commandment. Now that is the commandment that Jesus calls you and me to live our lives under. The great commandment to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our mind, and then to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. But in the scriptures we have not only the great commandment, we have also what has been described as the great requirement. And we have that particularly uh, rendered for us by the prophet Micah, where he says, He has shown all your people what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And so, this uh, great requirement underlines the second great commandment, the importance of loving our neighbor, of doing justly, and of loving mercy, as well as walking humbly with our God. So we have the great commandment, first of all. Secondly, we've got the great commission. And thirdly, secondly, we've got the great requirement. And thirdly, we have the great commission, which Jesus has given to his apostles and to all his disciples, not only in the first generation of Christianity, but down through the succeeding centuries. Let me read it again to you, these well-known words. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Here is Jesus speaking after his resurrection. He has been acknowledged to the universe as the king of kings. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So in each of these three key passages in the Bible, we are confronted with the royal authority of Jesus. 
And let me, let me emphasize this again, that when we, when we come to the Scriptures, we come to hear from Jesus. We come to discover what his will for us is. We come to the Scriptures because they testify to him. And so the Scriptures are the scepter of Jesus. They are the symbol of his kingship. But the problem, the crisis that we face in the human race is that our race is in rebellion against Jesus. We say with the people uh, before his trial, at his trial, we will not have this man to rule over us. We have rejected him. We have derided him. We have rebelled against him. And the question that we have to ask ourselves tonight, am I still part of that rebellion? Have I submitted my life to the Lord Jesus Christ? Have I surrendered myself to him so that he has become my Lord, my King, and my Savior? And so we have this testimony of the Scriptures that points to Jesus as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And that very testimony becomes the symbol of his kingship of his lordship over us. And it is as we live our lives under the scriptures that we, are, uh, that we honor him and that we're given the power to live the kind of lives that God wants us to live. You remember what the centurion came to, uh, who came to Jesus, asked him to heal his son, uh, said to Jesus. He said, you don't need to come to my house because he said, I also am a man under authority, and I say to this man, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. You see, he recognized that Jesus had authority, a divine authority. And Jesus is willing to share that authority with us as we submit ourselves to him. And he uh, uh, gives us this authority. He tells us here that... that uh, uh, we can go in his name out into the world as his witnesses. But this testimony to Jesus in and from the scriptures is one which has been confirmed down through the centuries. And I'd like to, 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 to mention uh, three people uh, who illustrate, who, who have illustrated, they're all now in the service of the, uh, of, of, of the Master in heaven, uh, they illustrate what, something of what it means to follow Jesus as Lord from the Scriptures. The writer to the Hebrews tells us that prior to his time, there was a great cloud of witnesses that, uh, that, that lived by faith. And there's a sense in which we can look back over the history of previous generations and thank God for the testimony that has come down to us through these generations and there is a sense in which there is, for us also, a cloud of witnesses. Now, I'd like, therefore, to share with you tonight three examples of Christians who submitted their lives and themselves to Jesus in such a way that he ruled over them and he ruled through them. And he used them in the work of his kingdom. And they, I'm going to take to, to, to one that illustrates the great commandment, one who illustrates the great requirement, and another who illustrates the great commission. 
The great commandment to love God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and to love your neighbor as you love yourselves. I want to share with you tonight the story of a man called Pavel Uhorskai. He died just 18 months ago, or a couple of years ago, in Slovakia. He was a young Lutheran pastor in the 1945-46 when the communists took over his country, which was then Czechoslovakia. And he was arrested by the communist authorities. They charged him with being an anti-Marxist. And uh, he, didn't, he claimed not to be anti-Marxist, but he claimed to be pro-Christian. Uh, but nevertheless, they accused him of anti-Marxism, and they sentenced him to three years' hard labor, which he spent in the forests of uh, Slovakia. And then he spent many years in prison. Uh, and uh, finally, he was released and worked in a factory. Now, he was a, a fully trained uh, theologian, a fully trained uh, minister of the Lutheran Church in Slovakia. But he was forbidden to preach in any pulpit in the land. He was barred from any pulpit for 40 years. He could go to church, and he was allowed to play the organ, but he could not preach. And for 40 years, he did not preach. But what he did do was to form an underground discussion group. And he himself told me this, uh, the, the, the story of this, and he told it to me after he had re he'd retired the second time uh, in, his, uh, uh, in, his, uh, in his old family house in a village in the north of Slovakia. And he told us how that in that very room this group would meet. And he said, we always met when it was one of the members' birthday." Because if the authorities came and said, what are you doing here? We could say to them, well, we're celebrating so-and-so's birthday. And they would go not only to his house, but to other houses as well. And this was a theological discussion group. It's very interesting that an underground theological discussion group. And I said, why did you do that? Well, he said, we believe that communism would ultimately fail. And we wanted to be ready for the day when freedom returned. Now, 40 years is a long time. But they persisted. And the extraordinary thing was that when the communist government fell, the then bishop of the general bishop of the Lutheran Church in Slovakia had been so compromised in the eyes of the people by his association with the previous government that he had to resign. And although Pavel Ohorskaya by this time had retired from his work in the factory, he was unanimously appointed the general bishop of the church. And his enthronement as the bishop, the general bishop in Bratislava was a great event at that time. It was uh, broadcast on television throughout the country. The country recently rediscovered its freedom. And there was a sense of excitement in the air. And everyone wondered, how could this man, who hadn't preached for 40 years, preach at this service of commissioning? Now, he went up to the pulpit, and he preached, I'm told, a tremendous sermon. And someone 
asked him afterwards, and this person who asked him told me this, so it's, it's, it's firsthand. This person went up to him, and, and she said, Bishop, she said, how is it that you could preach so well when you haven't preached for 40 years? And he said, although I haven't preached for 40 years, I prepared a new sermon every week during these 40 years so that I would be ready for the day when God would call me to preach again. Now there you had a man who was committed to the great commandment, to love God above everything else. He was challenged to the core of his being by the communist party, the communist government. But he committed his life to God and he believed that ultimately his faith would be vindicated and it was. He was not interested in short-term strategy. And he challenges us to think not only in terms of next week, next year, but to think long-term and to honor God and to put him first. And when that group would meet, they would gather around the scriptures and they would ask, what is God saying to us? How is Jesus directing us? What does he want us to do? To serve our country when the day will come. To serve our God and to serve our neighbor. So there is one illustration from our own lifetime of a man who was committed to the great commandment and who submitted his life to the lordship of Jesus as that lordship was revealed in the scriptures. Now, my second uh, example is one which all of us have already heard of, and that is Mother Teresa of Calcutta. Now, Mother Teresa had a very different theology from Pavlo Horsky, but she was a lady who deeply and passionately loved Jesus. And for 45 years and more, she ministered to the poor, the sick, the orphaned, and the dying in Calcutta. She cared for people who were suffering from HIV AIDS, from leprosy and from tuberculosis. She was called to this work after having served as a, as a nun in India for 10 years. And she was called to that work when she was contemplating Jesus. She was meditating on Jesus on a train journey in India going from Calcutta up to Darjeeling. And God spoke to her. And he called her to work not only for the poor, but to live with the poor and to become poor. And she herself became one of the poor. And she, in order to, 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 to support her work, had to beg on the street. And she knew the pain of what it meant to be poor in Calcutta. And so she demonstrated God's justice and God's mercy in that unjust society. She founded the Missionaries of Charity. It was very hard, as I've said at the beginning, she was tempted to go back to the convent. And the tempter would come to her, she says in her diary. And the tempter said to her, you have only to say the word and all that you had there will be yours again. And then she wrote in her diary, of free choice, my God, and out of love for you, I desire to remain and do whatever your holy will 
is in my regard. Her work, of course, spread far beyond Calcutta. In 1982, at the height of the siege of Beirut, she rescued 37 children trapped in a frontline hospital by brokering a ceasefire between the Israeli army and the Palestine guerrillas. She traveled to assist and minister to the hungry in Ethiopia, to the radiation victims of Chernobyl, and to the earthquake victims in Armenia. And today, there are over 4,000 sisters in our order working in over 123 countries around the world. Now, she did this out of love for Jesus. She says herself that she didn't have a strong faith. She went through long periods of doubt and sometimes of despair in her life, but she hung on because she had that commitment to Jesus. She trusted Jesus in the dark as well as in the light. And she was able to demonstrate to the country of India God's love in a tangible way. She was able to demonstrate to them something for what it meant to fulfill that great requirement to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. My third example is a Scotsman who died, I think, in 1917. Uh, he was a missionary uh, to China, but his influence was much, more, uh, much stronger in Korea. He was a man called John Ross, who was born in Nig in Easter Ross. You sometimes see in the news the fabrication yard there. Well, the house where John Ross was born is just a few miles from the Nig fabrication yard, and the church in which he was baptized and in which he became, came to faith uh, is just along the road from the fabrication yard. Now, John Ross was a very successful evangelist in this country. He was a Gallic evangelist, and he preached in Stornoway, he preached in Portree, he preached in Inverness, there's large numbers of people, and people were coming to Christ, and people were very enthusiastic, and they said, this is the man that God, through which God is going to evangelize and, uh, and bless the highlands. And then he was challenged about the work in China. Now, the work in China was hard, much harder than the work in the highlands. And he was in, you know, he had a difficult situation. He found it very difficult to make up his mind. He was being used powerfully by God here. And here he was being asked to consider to go to Manchuria in the north of China, where there were very few Christian converts, where the church was having a hard time. And he wasn't sure what to do. Then one day, a Christian lady said to him, she said, John, perhaps God wants you to be a spark in China rather than a flame in the highlands. And he took that as God's message to him. And he went to China. Now, his first years in China were hard. His wife died in childbirth. Some of the children, the child died also. They were very, there was a very poor response to the gospel. But he persevered because he believed that God had called him to fulfill, in the Great Commission 
to make disciples not only of the highlands of Scotland, but of all nations. And there in Manchuria, in the north of uh, China, he met some Koreans. Now, when he was called to go to China, he was called to go to China. He didn't think of Korea. But these Koreans were refugees who had fled from Korea because at that time it was a very, it was a hermit kingdom. It was very, very dictatorial and it was very difficult. And these were refugees and there still are Korean communities in that part of China. I had the privilege some years ago in preaching in one of their churches. Well, John Ross reached out to these Koreans and there were more converts among the Koreans than there were among the Chinese. And he began, along with a man called So San Jung, a Korean refugee, to translate the Gospel of Luke into Korean. And God blessed his work. And large numbers of these Korean refugees became Christians. And these Korean refugees wanted to take the Gospel back into Korea. And So San Jung this man who had helped to uh, translate the New Testament got a hundred copies uh, of the Gospel of Luke, the first Gospel that was translated into Korean, and he set out and he hid these in his, in his pack. But at the border, he was searched, and uh, he was put into prison. The Gospels were confiscated. But he was a man who uh, was able, was, uh, he had a lot of people skills, and he, he knew he was going to be, uh, to be released in the next day. He was just in prison overnight. And he persuaded the guard to give him a couple of copies of Luke's Gospel. And he was able to take these Gospels uh, all the way to Seoul. And there he gathered a group of people together to read the Gospels, to study the Gospels. And when the first Presbyterian, the first Protestant missionaries came to Korea uh, two or three years later, expecting to have to begin and to found a church, they found a church was already there. And there was a group of believers gathered around the Gospel of Luke. Now, John Ross today is what I presume, uh, I think Koreans would regard as, as their Protestant saint. He is highly regarded. He's buried in Newington Cemetery in Edinburgh. And just this, uh, a year ago this month, uh, representatives from the Korean churches came to hold, to put a new plaque on his grave and to, 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 to uh, 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 testify to uh, the impact that he had in translating not just the Gospel of Luke, then the Gospel of John, but the whole of the New Testament into Korean. Now he heard the voice of Jesus through that woman, go and make disciples of all nations. Now he was surely tempted to stay where God was using him, to stay where, where things were going well. But he heard the call and he obeyed the call. And so he followed Jesus to China. It was hard, it was difficult, but God blessed him. 
God multiplied and blessed him not only through the Korean community, but also in the Chinese community ultimately. Although the work in his day was still a small work, today it is a great work. I had the privilege of, of visiting the home uh, a few years ago in the city of Shenyang in the north of China in what used to, what the Japanese call Manchuria. Uh, and uh, that is now the, the, the church office. And they built a big church beside it. And one of the pastors said to me, would you like to come and visit our Bible study? And this was January, bitterly cold, many degrees below zero. There's no heating in Chinese churches. There were two and a half thousand people there on a Thursday morning to study God's word. You see, God's word is the seed of the kingdom. And Jesus wants us to share it. He wants us to give it to others. And because John Ross obeyed, God used him. And God blessed China, God blessed Korea abundantly. And so, when we come to the scriptures, let us come to them recognizing that Jesus is the one who is speaking to us. Let us come not simply to a book, and open that book reverently, but may we come to the feet of Jesus. Martin Luther used to say that when he read the gospel, Jesus would step out of the page and meet him. And Jesus can still do that today. And for that reason, we need to get beyond the book to Jesus. You remember what Paul said to the Galatians that the law, the Torah, is like a slave that would take the children to school. Now, when Paul speaks of the Torah, the law there, he's thinking more than of, the ten, of more than the Ten Commandments. He's thinking the word liter Torah literally means teaching. And the word you find in Psalm 119, which we saw, part of which we sang earlier, the word law there is used in the broadest sense of teaching of the Scriptures. And what Paul, in fact, is saying is that God gave the Scriptures in order to bring us to Christ. And simply to stop with the Bible is not enough. The Bible is the means of bringing us to Jesus. The Bible is his scepter, the symbol of his royalty, the symbol of his lordship, the symbol of his kingship. And each time we read it, he is challenging us to bow the knee and to submit to him. He's challenging us to acknowledge him as our Lord. In verse 25, Peter refers to Jesus as the overseer of our souls. I wonder, is Jesus the overseer of your soul? Is he the one who is in charge of your life? Is he Lord of all as far as you are concerned? Are you committed to him as he is committed to you? A young German aristocrat called uh, Count Zinzendorf became the founder of Moravian missions which spread all over the world uh, during the, the 18th century. 
Now, he lived in a Christian life, but it wasn't, uh, it was just a normal, or perhaps in some ways, uh, some ways normal Christian life. He would go to church on Sunday, he read the Bible, he prayed, and that was that. But one day when he was passing through Dusseldorf, he had to, to rest his horses. And the horses had a day's rest, so he went to the, he went to the, uh, to the art gallery. And there he, he saw Sternberg's picture of the crucifixion, Ecce Homo, Behold the Man. And the inscription in Latin which said, This I have done for you. What have you done for me? Now Zinzendorf was transfixed by that. He sat there for the whole day, gazing at that picture, contemplating Jesus dying for him and challenging him with that question. This I have done for you. What have you done for me? He was so transfixed that when the time for the gallery to close came, the attendant had to come and tap him on the shoulder and say, I'm sorry, sir, we're closing. But he left that gallery with a commitment he didn't have when he entered. And he became the founder of a missionary movement that spread all around the world. And I believe that God is today, Jesus is today looking for people who are committed to that commission, committed to the great commandment, committed to the great requirement, committed to the great commission to take the gospel to the whole of society and to every person. And so the challenge in this service, as indeed in every service, is to commit ourselves afresh to Jesus and to say to him in the words of the old hymn, have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Thou art the potter, I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will, while I am waiting, yielded and still. Have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Hold o'er my being absolute sway. Fill with thy spirit till all shall see Christ only, always living in me. May God grant that that may be our response tonight and that Jesus may be honored as we worship him. Let's bow our heads. Our Heavenly Father, we come to give you thanks for your word. We thank you that it is indeed the scepter of Jesus. And we pray that day by day as we read it, as we meditate upon it, we may submit ourselves to him and surrender all that we are and all that we have to him. Deliver us, O Lord, from holding anything back. We thank you for the example of those who've gone before us. We thank you for their commitment. We thank you for their love for Jesus. And we pray that you will enable us to walk in their footsteps as they sought to walk in his. And grant, O Lord, that you will use us to glorify Jesus, to build up your church and to extend your kingdom. We ask this in his name and for his sake. Amen.
You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk. For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.